Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of The Reading Cure. In this episode, we'll be discussing the novel Desperate Characters by Paula Fox. Welcome to The Reading Cure, where great books and great ideas are what we like to prescribe. My name is Dr Stephen Davis and my co-host is Dr Alexander Fox. Now, Desperate Characters is a novel written by Paula Fox, first published in 1970, which tells the story of Sophie and Otto Bentwood, an affluent couple living in a gentrified street in Brooklyn in the late 1960s. In the first chapter, Sophie is bitten by a stray cat she's been feeding in her garden, much to Otto's consternation, and this elicits the fear that she may have contracted rabies. The disturbing incident comes to symbolise the couple's sense of vulnerability to a seemingly hostile neighbourhood and indeed society more generally, and it's succeeded by a series of events over the course of a long weekend that serve to further increase their feelings of anxiety and isolation. Otto, who is a lawyer, is undergoing a seemingly irreparable dispute with his long-term friend and business partner, Charlie. Sophie confesses to Charlie at one point that she has had an affair a number of years previously, and like Charlie, finds Otto's detached and rigid nature to be somewhat infuriating. Sophie's ongoing ambivalence about seeking medical attention for her cat bite persists for much of the weekend, which culminates in a disastrous trip with Otto to their vacation home in Flinders, Upon arriving, they discover that the house has been trashed, presumably by local youths, and this serves to shatter Otto's faith in the possibility of achieving lasting order and security in their life. The couple's relationship becomes increasingly strained as they struggle to empathise with each other and their habitual patterns seem to be increasingly unravelling. Desperate Characters is an astute and masterfully written novel that explores the complexities of marriage, the human condition, and the search for meaning in a world that can often seem baffling and even hostile. So turning now to the author of this novel, um, Paula Fox was an American author whose literary career spanned over five decades. She was born in New York City in 1923 and had a difficult childhood, which included abandonment by her parents and time spent in various foster homes. Despite these challenges, Fox developed a love for reading and writing at a young age, and she eventually went on to earn a degree in English from Columbia University. Fox's writing often explored themes of displacement, identity, and the complexities of human relationships. She wrote both children's books and novels for adults, with her work often receiving critical acclaim. In 1974, she was awarded the Newbery Medal for her children's book, The Slave Dancer, And in 1978, she received the Hans Christian Andersen Award, which is the highest international recognition for a body of work in children's literature. Despite her success as a writer, Fox remained somewhat enigmatic and private throughout her life. Um, And she passed away in March of 2017 at the age of 93. Okay, so the first question we've got, Alec, is really about the title of the novel, um, Desperate Characters. Obviously, you know, explicitly within the novel, there is a reference to the famous Thoreau quote about the mass of men leading lives of quiet desperation. Um, I'm wondering in what sense you think the characters in this novel would be desperate as 
the the author Paula Fox might have seen it. Yeah, well, off off the top of my head, you know what comes uh, to mind is that there there is this idea of the you know civilization is order. And then there's this idea of decay and chaos in the novel, you know, as a kind of grand theme. And I have this sense that one of the main ways in which the Bentwoods, you know, Otto and Sophie, are desperate is that they they see themselves as trying to maintain, you know, these forces of civilization as they see it anyway. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure that the that that Paula Fox is satirizing it and critiquing it in some way. But I think as far as they see it they are trying to be the civilized ones in a civilization that is breaking down and that that leads to the sense of desperation you know of trying to hold things together really this is something that that's instigated or exacerbated is probably a more accurate way of putting it by the the bite you know from the cat that sophie suffers that could be possibly rabbit and you know near the end of the novel um sophie thinks well, you know, if she has rabies, then, you know, her rabies matches the outer world, you know, the rapid, rapid world outside. So the, the, there's this sense of trying to be civilized in a, in a world that is quite rabid, really, as, as, as they see it. That's interesting. Yeah, indeed. Um, I, I, yeah, I think that that's interesting that you obviously you've really picked up on this on the, the kind of social context. I, I think I think you're quite right. I mean, I think the 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 sort of symbolism of of the cat bite is so you know central to that as we'll come mm. to. I, I thought what was interesting. I didn't. I wouldn't normally necessarily do this, but I looked up a couple of definitions of the word desperate just to get a kind of sense mm -hmm. of how it might fit here. And there's a few. I'll maybe just read you that I thought were interesting. Um, you've got feeling or showing a hopeless sense that a situation is so bad as to be impossible to deal with, which I thought, yeah, mm -hmm. you could see that. Um, also, though, I thought it was interesting that when desperation is applied to a person, the definition mm. is having a great need or desire for something mm. and also applied to a situation extremely serious or dangerous. And so I, I kind of wondered about the, you know, the different almost meanings of the term desperate. Um, I mean, like Sophie, for example, you know, she's such an interesting character, really, because you know her her situation. This kind of almost. I mean, I think the the writer Jonathan Franzen, who who did the foreword in the book, describes her as being like a Hamlet kind of character, which I thought was an interesting take. Mm, she, mm. she really is this kind of passionate and intuitive, but very uncertain, quite passive and unfulfilled person you know kind of lacking a kind of meaning and direction really you know in this obviously <clears throat> both the relationship she has with Otto you know mm. as well as the kind of socio-economic situation she's in you know both of these are actually kind of precarious you know so there's kind of a, a desperate quality to you know different dimensions in her life there, there's a yeah. lot of desperation I guess is what I was kind of seeing in it yeah, well, I think I think that you know in the novel they link up the the inner sense of desperation with that wider kind of desperate situation that that's in society at the time. Yeah, and, and you know this this idea that that you know civilization as they see it is something that is uh, you know a difficult and unsteady uh achievement you know it can easily unravel and and i think that the characters feel that the relationship could possibly unravel you know as well yeah as well as actually the their own impulses because yes yeah, sophie is someone that has has learned to become you know very inhibited 
in in many senses. And I think part of it is to do with being married to Otto. But of course, when you hear about her upbringing and her relationship with her mother, where she was kind of taught various lessons quite sternly, that she's someone that that thinks that if she spontaneously shows her her emotions or spontaneously acts on impulses that that's wrong in some way i think you know one of the most telling details about her is in is at that moment when she's bit by the the stray cat that she doesn't let out a, a yet you know she's tempted to but she holds it back because even in that moment she's thinking about how Otto might actually react to to her you know crying out and she doesn't want to draw attention to her pain, you know, because she's rather self-effacing in many ways. I think that's a great point. I mean, yeah, there is this real conflictedness in her, in her because um, I was thinking about, for example, when Otto's business partner or, you know, about to separate from him, the, the other lawyer, mm. Charlie, you know, he yeah. turns up and initially Sophie's quite excited by the nighttime mm. adventure, you know, where they go out to a mm. bar to talk about things and it's very spontaneous and, you know, you can see that that appeals to her on a certain level, but it's kind of also riddled with doubt about the whole thing. You know, afterwards, she's really feeling quite ambivalent about whether whether or not she should have acted on that impulse because as you said she's really trained herself not to actually through both her, her mother and, and Otto as well you know she obviously is as you say quite excited by this break in routine Charlie Russell turning up in the early hours of the morning but you know when they actually go to a bar she confesses although she doesn't give the the full story about her affair yes to Charlie which is obviously quite a misguided thing to do, given how Charlie and Otto's uh, professional relationship and personal relationship as friends is unraveling. But, you know, this is a point where she she actually acts on impulse. And I think it, well, the way I read it is that Paula Fox might be saying this is someone that is so unskilled or so unused to acting on impulse that when she does it, she does it in this quite unwise way. I mean, not that necessarily that relaying about the affair leads to any consequences directly in the novel, although it could outwith the the framework of the novel, you know, in, in Sophie's future be an issue, because maybe Charlie would tell Otto, I, I don't know. But this is someone that doesn't really quite have a a wisdom to acting on impulse. You know, it, it's quite sporadic and unwise, clumsy. Really? I, I think I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, yeah, you're right. She does get a little bit carried away, blurt this out, immediately regrets it when she sees his reaction because she knows actually, in terms of the reading we seem to get of Charlie's character, is that he's angry at Otto, but he's also mm. been a loyal friend and he's he's, yeah. got, he's hurt by him. So yeah, this isn't necessarily a very clever thing to confess. I thought it was interesting as well, though, because Charlie's the character who the desperate reference in the Thoreau quote, you know, yeah. it comes from him. And in that scene, he says actually to Sophie, are you desperate? And her response, I noted down here, I thought it was interesting. She says, I don't know. I suppose I need something to do. I'm too idle. You know, that kind of, listless she can't even really quite articulate whether she'd consider herself desperate or not and that that kind of vacillation in her kind of energy levels but resigned state and then these moments of passion that seems to be quite defining in terms of how she is but but deep down quite an energetic person yes. I think, you know yeah. passionate soul 
Yeah, quite possibly, but as you say, it's not as though she feels desperate all the time. It's no. not like she's a pressure cooker just looking to release certain, you know, feelings. Not, not, I mean, it, it, it seems as though other times she can feel quite, you know, happy or even just rather neutral. Uh, yes. And I suppose that's a very realistic element of, of the novel. I think also the desperation is uh, indicative of the the alienation that the characters can feel from each other as well. And this this trying to, particularly Sophie, to almost break down Otto's defences, to reach him in some ways. There's a, there is a kind of desperation there because, you know, it isn't sustained and it doesn't really succeed much at all. Indeed. Well, uh, yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, she, yeah, there is a kind of ongoing attempt sometimes with little bursts of anger which never really last very long to just try and make him try and get through to him and there is a, there's also a kind of ongoing attempt to try and decipher him really because in the the scene much later in the novel where she finds he's come down in the night he's, and he's underlined something in a book about the I think it was the riots that happened in the 1400s mm. where these teenagers were hung and, and yeah. it's underlined to vindicate the law and then she she thinks about seven possible interpretations as to why mm. he might have done that you know with obviously this fear that he's he's so abstract and fixated on the principle that he's missing the kind of human dimension of it all but even there she's not really sure i think there's there was a good quote round about that where she says something about we've been married for 15 years but out with the dynamics of this, I don't know if I really do know this guy, and it's yeah. that doubt. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I think the thing is that um, for Sophie, there's that desperation that comes from at times feeling that she knows Otto only too well, almost like a very clear sense of who he is, and then at other times that he, as he, as you say, seems quite indecipherable. So she sort of vacillates from being bewildered to being too knowing and 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 i think again that's quite a realistic uh, aspect of the novel when you've got two very intelligent characters that they might feel at times they really know each other sometimes that's not a good thing and at other times that the, the, they're a mystery to the other and I you see that with sophie that she is trying to work out who he really is I, absolutely. I mean, it is a very, very subtle and realistic and deep depiction of characters, actually. Jonathan Franzen describes her, you know, as I said, Hamletian in a way, I think he calls her morbidly self-conscious. You know, she is this intellectual that's also a little bit low energy, but gets a little bit lost in these ruminations or analysis of herself of Otto and never really mm. been some as you say sometimes she can predict his habits you know with incredible astuteness but at other times he slightly goes it goes against the the grain and then then she's puzzled again so there's something really realistic about that I think yeah yeah I mean I th it's interesting he says morbidly introspective I mean that be that may be true because you could make the argument that if if people don't don't ask enough, you know directly that then they have to start surmising what what the meaning of things are uh, a bit like in a henry green novel that as you're reading it you yeah. are exercising uh your interpretive capacities because you know the characters are not very direct about what they're thinking or feeling and yeah clearly because of our introversion and inhibition you know which are, and of course these things aren't 
the same thing. But no. in her case, she has those two dimensions to her character that she she has to interpret things a lot of the time because you know she's not quite keen on uh, acting or asking Otto. You know, she, I mean, there are some exceptions to that. You know, like when she asks them, "Does he look at the?" Does he take stock of the female clients? Um, yep. How they look, but he doesn't. He doesn't take her up on that. Yes, um, and that's one of the most direct things that she she says to him, where her curiosity gets that gets the better of of her. But I think one of the most interesting things about her is that she almost has this kind of masochism to to her. You know, like how she endures the pain, how she doesn't go and get herself checked out to see whether she needs shots. So she endures this pain and uncertainty, but also she's got this real fear and foreboding as well. You know, those two aspects to her. Like she, she seems to want to, to endure pain, but other times she's fleeing from pain as well. I, I, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, her, her ongoing action or lack of regarding the, the cat bite, because, you know, in the initial scene, part of it, to me anyway, seemed like essentially there's a little bit of a power dynamic with her and Otto insofar as he's told her that's silly, you shouldn't be petting that cat. Mm -hmm. And in a way, he's just been proved right and she doesn't, you know, there's an element of not necessarily wanting to concede that. But I think there's a lot more to it than that in terms of her passivity because, as you said, she is worried about it and lots of people keep advising her to get it looked at and she makes a half-hearted effort at times. But, yeah, there's a kind of vacillation, I suppose, between almost like procrastinating or wanting to forget about it and then, you know, extreme yeah. fear. It's a, it's a strange one. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, if we're seeing it from a Freudian perspective that, that you know, Freud, uh, you know, had argued that one of the prices of being civilized is that, you know, we can moralize our pain. I mean, he didn't put it quite in that way, but we could take, you know, pain as a form of self-punishment. Uh, yes. If you've got a sense of guilt. So it's almost like um, you get a sense that she feels that she should endure this in some ways, as well as be very frightened about the consequences of not getting it treated. So there's this real ambivalence about pain and her own well-being, really. <laughs> I think that's true. Um, it, it's interesting as well. It almost seemed a bit like it was a kind of moment of trauma for her, really, because obviously she, you know, is so scathing of Otto's detached, supposed, reasonable, rational way of and, and kind of unempathetic way of dealing with people in situations. And she's quite, you know, one thing she seems assertive about to a degree is the rightness of her more empathetic, caring approach. You know, that's obviously what drives her kind of round the bend about him. But when she reaches out in a kind, gentle way to this cat and then just out the blue, it bites her. You know, it's like that in some ways violated her security in the world because that just almost shouldn't shouldn't happen. I, I can't, there was Again, there was a good quote about it. There's so many good quotes in this novel. I can't really quite um, find that one at the moment. But, you know, I mean, there was a, there was something really, it seemed traumatic and momentous about that, that the impact of that act on her. Yeah, I mean, it did seem like she didn't expect it at all, you know, that because she was actually feeding the cat, helping the cat, yeah. that it would not actually respond by biting her so savagely there. So there, there is this kind of thing of almost like assuming that the stray cat was following a social code, you know, like the code of 
civilization. You know, you help your neighbor out. Your neighbor doesn't shoot you, say, <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, you know, you assume that that other people are going to treat you well if you treat them well. And yet she, you know, and she sort of assumed that with the cat. It's like she anthropomorphized the cat as a human being that, you know, it was like feeding some homeless guy and then the homeless guy kicking her, you know, that it was like, you know, this shouldn't be happening. That's not the way to behave. I think so. And I think because she finds something really unpalatable about Otto's outlook, and we can obviously come to him because we haven't really quite maybe got to, you know, mm. what's desperation for him. But, you know, she finds that so unpalatable. And I feel like she has a guttural sense that he needs to be more in touch with his feelings. He should be more empathetic to Charlie and things like that. But but yet he was right here. I mean, he's so unempathetic about the cat. You know, later on, he's happy to kick it, you know, when it, to get rid mm. of it. And he just dismisses it. He says it's like a snake or so. You know, there's just such a chilly indifference to this animal that prior to it biting Sophie, you know, you might feel a little bit sorry for the kind of plight of it. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, he's proved he's proved right in that instance. And that is quite a sore one for her as well in terms of like maybe undermining her faith in her own judgment as well. Yeah, well, I mean, he has a more, shall we say, cynical view of other people than what she does. And, and you can see at times she's sort of trying to rebel against that or critique that um as to yeah. whether the novel fully vindicates his point of view is another another thing really i think that you know probably the character charlie russell is put in the the novel to highlight otto's weaknesses but again in this novel you don't get a sense that any character absolutely nails the other and that one is right and the other one's wrong i think each of them has something insightful to say about each other right? definitely yeah again it's the, it's the really deep and nuanced realism of it there because i mean with yeah with Otto, just in terms of him i mean it was there was a there was a quote i quite liked which was from sophie where she, mm. she sees him sleeping and the quote is mm. even in his sleep he looked reasonable although yeah. the, the immoderately twisted bedclothes suggested that reason and sleep had to be obtained at a cost you know and i thought oh, that really captures him that he's he's so determined to impose this ordering on you know his house and how the street should be and how people should be that he's he's hyper attached to that rigid ordering but it's very precarious of course and and yeah he, he almost is more troubled when their holiday home and is it flinders is, is vandalized mm. he's absolutely devastated and brought really to a state of of real crisis by that you know because it does it's so he's so attached i suppose to this rationality well he well he is and and that notion of the law and how much it can be upheld is something that that haunts him because it, it's really the question of how much order can you bring to society really how how much can you you know sustain and uphold it that is a key question you know it, it's not only about the law it's also about how he and other human beings can possibly uphold law and order when they've got these contrary tendencies you know yeah. as as uh, as it says in the novel that this reason was achieved you know was something that was achieved uh, at a cost yes um and maybe you could say that about civilization in general you know there might be she might be making a wider point the narrator even if Otto is a particularly severe, maybe almost semi-pathological case 
of that. Um, when you hear about his father, you know, that his father um, always expected people to tell stories and stick to the point. He didn't want digression. Yes. You, can, you can see how if you're brought up by someone like that, that you would become very rational and ordered and focused and downplaying the emotional side of life, which is obviously going to be richer but messier <laughs> as well. That's a great point. I mean, again, another brilliantly subtle detail inserted about the parent psychology to mm. help understand these characters. Yeah, because as you say, it's like it's made Otto so orderly that he can't really quite do human relationships very well at all. You know, like he's his reason for splitting with Charlie is he sees him as melodramatic. Mm. You know, he's and we get that. We see that with Charlie when we kind of meet him as adamant one minute about one thing mm. and then another, and and it just is so much against the grain of Otto mm. that even even though it was a yeah like a long term best friend, he's now decided he doesn't like him. And he, you know, relationships are just too difficult for him really. Yeah, I mean, he, he might have that propensity to see it, you know, pragmatically, you know, how much it serves his current interests and goals. I think also, to be fair to him, you know, he does explain to Sophie that he thinks Charlie may have been turning certain clients against him. I mean, he doesn't True. have absolute proof of that, but if that was the case, then that is certainly not good behaviour, you know, from your business partner. Um, and this is, again, why it's complex in that, you know, uh, nobody becomes a villain. I mean, I think we can we can see why, you know, Charlie Russell would view Otto as somebody unreachable in in a way. You know that he can't quite, you know, break down those barriers and be recognised truly as a friend as he as he would understand it, and probably as most people understand it. But we can also understand you know Otto's view about uh Charlie being histrionic in some ways too. I think yep. both of them are, uh, both of them have in, in, uh, you know uh insightful points about each other. Um I think that's almost the thing that's most most consistent across the novel, as you say, is, is the is the way that they can all have the even Otto can have a kind of savvy about about the others. He, obviously, as you said, relationships are difficult for him. But yeah, it's like um, I mean, he sees Charlie. I thought it was interesting in quite a cynical way. You know, he sees him as almost a real phony who's who's kind of attached more to the image of being the kind of lawyer that helps the disadvantaged rather yeah. than having a kind of sincere. And I think there's a truth to that, but that might be taken it a little bit too far because I felt I don't know about you when we when we meet Charlie as yeah. you said I think histrionic's quite a good word you know we on the one hand he lets slip he's got the it's the is it the not the the lawyer in the Dickens mm. novel Bleak House is kind of mm. like his hero and he and he and he tells an anecdote about when this lawyer made a witty you know a witty little um, retort and he, he loves this so there's obviously is something about image that he's attached to but yeah, it's, yeah yeah I but mean but I th you know yeah. Yeah. Sorry. On you go. Um, no, but 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 yeah. I don't think he's an absolute phony or, a, or 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 anything like that. I think there is still probably something genuine about what he values, like his politics and what he, you know what he thinks the law firm should be. I, well, I, you know. I, I think yeah. I think it, 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 one of the things that's very realistic about this is that you know in in real life when people have insight into others, it, uh, the insight could also be somewhat distorted by the person's own biases as well. So yeah. so, yeah, I mean, what Otto says about Charlie, what Charlie says about Otto um, has a certain veracity, but it's also somewhat heightened by their own psychological quirks and insecurities and neuroses. At least that's how I saw it.
I, and I that's quite realistic. That I think that's spot on. Yeah, two little quotes, actually, just to give you. One of them, I thought, um, so from Charlie, he, he says, I care about everything in my desperate fashion. It's desperation that keeps me going. And mm, obviously, mm. his final words in the book are through the, the phone as it's kind of dangling from the, the you mm. know, the receivers yeah. saying, I'm desperate, I'm desperate. And I think also that, you know, because Sophie and Otto are... De- dealing with or suppressing at times their own sense of desperation that they 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 don't have the greatest sympathy for Charlie who actually wears that desperation on his you know metaphorical sleeve more. Um I don't think Otto would would care much for that really. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's that's quite right. And um, maybe maybe a, a just a kind of we could give paula fox herself the kind of closing mm. word on this issue because there was a really nice quote from an interview I was, I was reading with her which was from 2007 so i think she was in her 80s and she was talking about this novel when she said to get at the truth of something you really have to think about it you have to think and feel about it and somehow whatever that process is thinking and feeling you have to lend yourself to it so that you can see it from every angle and yeah, you know that this yeah. is this really comes across, you know, in terms of as you've just been describing the way the characters partly have wisdom in each other, partly misconstrue each other. It's a very complex kind of picture that we never really get a a definite definite yes. reading from. Uh, well, no, I, well, well, that's right, and I think that we have to form that ourselves, you know, based on these different perspectives, you know, as we've been doing, you know, trying to sift what actually is insightful from what has maybe been distorted by the characters. Of course, we are going to do it in light of our own biases and insecurities and so on. So, I mean, you know, this is a complex process. That quote from the interview is interesting because it does highlight a sort of ethic of Paula Paula Fox. And maybe this is what she expresses it through the character Sophie, because one of the Sophie's regular critiques at Otto is that he's so definite about things. You know, he, it's so final. Yes, indeed. And, and I think, you know, Sophie has a degree of contempt for that. Uh, maybe this is something that Paula Fox as well was critiquing, you know, about people that that, that are so definite, so final in their pronouncements with, that haven't undergone that process of looking at things from many different angles. And I think one of the things that's, that struck me about this this novel is that the insights that, that the characters have into each other are like shards of glass. You know, they're acute mm. and, the, and they're also, you know, quite bleak, really. Yeah. Um, it's not, you don't get a sense at all, or, or I didn't anyway, throughout the whole novel that, that people are really seeing into each other and also seeing good. Actually, that maybe you know leads us in nicely to a, a different question, which which follows on that issue about the about the relationship. Because, um, so the question was obviously as the novel progresses, that the relationship Sophie and Otto has undergoes considerable strain. You've touched before on the fact of Sophie having had an affair. So, based on what you've just said, and you know what what the novel kind of depicts, how do you see this relationship is ultimately 
disintegrating, or do you think there is still a future for them um, as a couple? Well, I mean, there is obviously the possibility that it doesn't disintegrate, but they don't really have a viable future, if you see what I mean. True, yeah. I mean, uh, mm. you know, really it's quite speculative how it would how it would turn out. But, I mean, that affair and how it was conducted and how it came to an end, you know, it was so anticlimactic. Yeah. How it came to an end. But it still has this sort of uh, significance in her ruminations. But there doesn't seem to be any desire from, from either of them to leave the relationship or things would become so unbearable that they would have to to par. I mean, you, you see some worrying tendencies such as, you know, Sophie feel contemptuous towards Otto, you know, like that, um, yes. uh, you know, it so suddenly comes to the fore, suggests that it's, it's there as a kind of background for her. Uh, but yeah, I didn't get any, I have no idea how that relationship would, would develop, disintegrate or stay together. Um, I think they would definitely have trouble finding meaning together in their lives i think that's it doesn't look um you know promising in that regard but I, yeah i have no i did get a sense that it was uh forming any tea leaves that i could read with uh you know any insight no indeed i mean this again this is part of the genius of the novel i, I would i would be I take the same view i mean that there is there's moments of hate and frustration but it, it, it would say they never seem to lose some element of love for each other which obviously vacillates obviously the novel is this dramatic weekend you know it's over mm. quite a short period of time and there is the suggestion that turbulent times are something they have kind of they have endured obviously mm. the the affair was interesting as well because i mean the the guy she was having the affair with I can't remember his name, Fran Francis, maybe or something. Francis he, he, Early, yeah. That, that's it. Yeah, he, he goes back to his wife and children, and she gets a sense that she was a bit much for him, you know, and, and he's not he doesn't really quite share her passionate nature. So again, that that would be quite a disillusioning experience for her. And it's yeah, it's not clear really that there's she's even looking for something else of that kind, if she's more resigned to the situation with Otto, or she thinks maybe she can get a bit more out of Otto. It's 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 all very unclear. Yeah, you're right. It's hard to Yeah, know. I mean the, the, the thing is that she probably was left with a sense of being used, really, there, mm -hmm. in, in, in a way. But, yeah, what exactly transpired between her and Francis is very difficult to, to work out. I mean, you know, this was a guy that was a publisher of horticultural books and yeah. books about Beatles. You know, in other words, classifying things in a very clear way. And yet we can't really do that with this affair. You know, it's it's hard to say exactly what kind of butterfly this affair was. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It, it's it's very hard to, to nail down what actually was going on. You know, how much was he still in love with his wife? How much did he go out of back out of a certain convention or um or just weariness uh really there? Clearly clearly he was drawn to, to Sophie uh in, in terms of lust, in terms of personality, they, they didn't really say too much 
to each other. And it seemed as though he was quite abstracted, even in their most intimate moments. You're, you're right. I mean, it's it's hard, actually, based on Paula Fox's very concise way of writing, it's hard to really see what quite generated the level of passion that seemed to come over Sophie. And I kind of got the impression, in a way, it was just, it was there, you know, looking for an object, and he temporarily... She maybe read a certain level of passion and it turned out not to be there and she eventually kind of saw through that. I don't know if that's yeah. right. No, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, was- I mean, it's possible. It's possible. I mean, for me, one of the most significant things that she said about him is that, you know, she was quite taken by how uh, solicitous he was, you know, how much he was actually attending to them when they visited. Yes. You know, like she said, like... Uh, an over-solicitous child. Clearly, there was a kind of politeness in in that. But, you know, that attentiveness, even if it was somewhat out of politeness and maybe not entirely heartfelt, is, is quite a contrast to Otto, actually, because he could never be accused of being attentive in a sustained no. way. I mean, we see that over the course of the novel, that, as you know, as the novel goes on, he does become more concerned about the bite. But he takes his time for it to kick in, doesn't it? You know, really. And he doesn't yeah. really have quite a sustained concern. And, and you know, except in moments like they're at the hospital and, and so on. But it's, he, it's, so, it's so ambiguous. I mean, even in the early scene, you know, when, he, when she has just owned up to him, she's got this bite. And on the one hand, there's a little bit of concern from him about it but he then pretty quickly gets immediately back on the issue of him and charlie and then he, yeah. i thought this was an interesting line he says i'll be better off by myself and it was and he, he says he says that immediately after he's just explained to her why he thought she shouldn't have been petting the cat you know in quite a sort of childlike way so again there was a bit of i was i wondered is that is that intimating a kind of freudian slip element there that he's actually you know in general seeing life would be a bit better by himself if he didn't have to put up with other people and their foibles and as she kind of sort of dimly aware of that dimension to him just like solo element that maybe has you know as you said this other man who is paying her a little bit more direct attentions maybe has you know felt like there was a real appeal there because she just doesn't get much of that from Otto I don't know it's, yeah well it's I mean I think I think there there is something in what you say that that she probably has this fear that if if she she doesn't want to burden him with any troubles mm. that she has to, you know she doesn't want to claim too much attention from him consciously, but then unconsciously there will be that unrecognized need for love, you know, for uh, affection that isn't getting met, really. And that this Francis Early, who was somewhat stereotyped in his attentiveness and affection, uh, yeah. is still something that elicits that in her, really, because maybe she's, as you say, she's looking for any anything that is remotely what she needs and he happened to be something that that was remotely close to what she needed but yeah. obviously not actually a good fit as 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 the as we can see from the way that the relationship de- you know devolved really indeed i mean it's so difficult because i mean this is the thing on the one hand you sometimes have auto in a kind of slightly condescending parent role but there's you know the moment where the house has been trashed and he's you know he, he, he kind of comes out with this 
sort of almost existential cry, like how 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 am I to live? You know, when he's you know obviously this has just been violated their their mm. holiday home, and there's no you know it doesn't seem like the local policeman's really going to be able to do much about it, and so on. So mm. and and Sophie's reaction was interesting at that point because he was in quite a kind of childlike vulnerable state, and she kind of laments the fact that he. I think, does he see her face and her face is a little bit scathing at that moment because yeah. she thinks this is all a bit silly, it's some vandalism, what's the big deal? Mm. You know, so again, he, there is a kind of vulnerable child quality to him sometimes and how he reaches out, you know, looking for that reassurance from her. So it's really, it's really dense and complex. And Yeah, well, I mean, I, I feel that while Francis Early maybe spoke to some unmet needs in her, I still get the impression that overall Otto cared more about her. Overall. Yes, yes. But but in this rather oblique sort of way, which as you say at times is sort of punctured when he reaches out to her in vulnerability or or he's trying desperately to convey something uh to her. And and you know it's it's interesting for somebody that is so literary minded, you know, and how she reads the world that, you know, when he says about the, the house being violated and, and sees this sort of symbolic significance, almost like the guy looking after their house and the family, you know, the way their house is arranged, it's like saying die to him and people like him, you know, that she seems to somewhat dismiss it as a more literal thing you know that it was just vandalized and yeah i didn't quite expect that from her just to see it in that very matter-of-fact way yeah i mean if i was to have a bet as to how it might pan out i think for me it's probably leaning more in the direction of they'll probably carry on as they are i don't really see anything there although it's been a crisis and it's really shaken their sense of security in many ways I don't. I think it's more the absence of alternatives, really, and the fact that they're in this pattern, and they do still have, they still love each other, although they they deeply frustrate each other. So yeah, I I, I that's, yeah. that would be, to me that that's how I think that I think she's just trying to show the real complexities of of what a marriage could be like. I think I think that's. I, what I it think is. so, and and you know when when Otto says that he can't start another career as a lawyer in Chicago, you know, because of his age. Yeah. I think that will be a key consideration in the relationship as well, you know, that uh, because they're a middle-aged couple, yeah. that, uh, you know, they'll probably continue on as as they are in many ways. And, and they're used to adapting to adverse circumstances to some extent. You know how they, they got used to adapting to not having... Uh, any children now it's not intimated that that they really wanted children but you know there's that sense anyway they got used to it whatever yes. significance that that had for them they came to terms with it in some shape or form and, and that that's what they'll probably do even if it becomes difficult at times to do that without quite some distress or desperation yeah, well, I mean, I suppose this is the, exactly the desperation of the situation. You know, as we've been, as we've discussed before, Sophie is not predominantly an active person. I don't know what the word is, slight stupor, slight periods of kind of malaise. And, you know, with obviously the, the you know, the passion has come out mm. at points. And then Otto, obviously, although he's been shaken by what's happened, I think in both cases, there's nothing really in their characters to me that's going to suggest any kind of radical split or change. I mean, this is obviously part of the the dynamic that they'll be so habituated to, you know, after their, their 15 years together. Um, yeah, so. when I consider the, the kind of desperation that they feel, 
I mean, you know, the, there's almost this sense in the novel that, that desperation or despair in some way could become routine, really. <laughs> Something that is part of the background almost of your life until it jumps to the foreground at points. But, you know, something that they're living with, yeah. you know, that is part of their life, part I, of the fabric of their life. I think that's a good point. I mean, that um, another question we were going to consider was, which I think relates to that really, is about this sense of living in a kind of vulnerable, almost under siege kind of state, you know, because obviously they... You know, it's not just them, you know, other members of their kind of social set, you know, I think it's the Holsteins, they mm. go and somebody throws a rock through the window and there's, you know, there's a kind of background of potential hostility mm. there, you know, and, and as you said, there's both the kind of in, the internal dynamics where things can feel desperate, but there, but as you, you know, described really early on about the, the kind of economic context as well. And and it's suggested when their Flinders home is trashed, you know, this mm. has actually been happening to other affluent city dwellers you know holiday homes so yeah. there is there is a kind of broader centrally of of this kind of vulnerability and yeah maybe you're right maybe that is just because i mean the other relationships we see in the novel as well aren't straightforward you know our friend claire mm. and her first husband who seems to be coming back to her for mm. a greater comradeship mm. or mm. you know you know all these it's all very complicated so yeah i think you're right there is a kind of background of that desperation um, in terms of the specific question i wanted to ask about that this sort of sense of of these middle class mm. couples being under siege did you see that as just the socioeconomic conditions of the time new york or do you think that is kind of about particular kind of individual neurosis you know paranoid kind of mindsets or or, or what what or you know the more psychological side do you think it's more of a kind of economic <clears throat> siege or, or, or what, what's your yeah take? i mean i'd be tempted to say both to some extent in that you know clearly where the bentwoods are living there's also slums just yes you know directly across the street so that you know um combination of affluence and, and also poverty and the way of course poverty is portrayed uh, in the novel, how much that's Paula Fox's perspective and how much it's the Bedwoods is something we could talk about um, later. Yeah, but I'm also sure. tempted to say it might have more to, the sense of being under siege might have more to do with the characters in that we see with Charlie Russell that he is someone that, that is moving with the times, you know, yes. in that, that he is he's aware of the current social issues to engage with and he wants to engage with that quite why in terms of motivations is, is quite you know it's complex you know Otto reads it in a quite a cynical way and I'm not I don't think he's without a point but I don't think that quite captures it but that's another issue but but you know Otto is someone that doesn't want to work with the times you know he is someone that wants he kind of sees civilization as yeah, well, he probably sees himself as being very civilized and he is what a civilized person should be. And it's quite <laughs> a static conception. And so, you know, when there is changes, he feels threatened by any changes, I think. And, and, and the, you know, that's a sense of being under siege that is to do with his own insecurities. I think also a very telling thing was that when a police officer came, you know, a few years before and said to to Otto, you know, at, at his doorstep that, that people like the Bentwoods were basically making the area more civilised, you know, um, a better yeah. place to live. That yep. You know, the very telling 
line is that you know Otto felt a murderous gratification <laughs> at that. Now the, yeah. the thing is the murderous gratification, I think that reveals that he wants to eradicate in some way these people, these signs of decay as he sees it, you know, the these you know, the sort of rabid elements of yeah. society. He thinks that anything that can't be quietly, quite neatly put into Ordered compartments as rabid and needs to be murdered, you know, destroyed. That and so, if that's your view, I don't want to sound like Jordan Peterson here about order, <laughs> order and chaos. But I'm sure he could go to town on this novel. Um, but if you've got that conception of order, you know, an order that isn't dynamic, you know, that yes. isn't keeping in touch with change, then you're going to feel very much under siege. Uh, by changes, if you see what I mean. I, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it is a bit of a sort of diabolical contrast in a way, which obviously is very effective, you know, dramatically, because Otto is, you know, the way he kind of early on, I think it, it uses the phrase antique serenity of his house and it, mm. in terms of how he sees it and the joy it brings him. And yeah, there is a view that anybody who's not trying to preserve the kind of classical look you know as basically failing as a person and as somebody he would look down on and so obviously you know the people round about in these slum areas he has no sympathy for them as you said he sees them really as as like a scourge and he and he would yeah i mean it's, it's almost implying he would like to just completely <coughs> rid society of of poorer people yeah, yeah. Kind of, so yeah i mean there is as you say i mean that's a pretty extreme outlook for somebody to have who clearly um, is surrounded by people who are going to, um, well, resent him partly for his wealth and clearly continue to offend his supposed sense of decency and so on. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a bit, um, I, you know, it's a recipe for disaster, that one, really. Well, yeah. it is. And, and, you know, there's that sort of neurotic rationality that he has, you know, one that doesn't engage too much with feelings because, you know, his own emotions, I'm not saying that he doesn't, reflect at all upon them that would be too severe a criticism but it's almost like the emotional side of life is like the debris on the street you know the mess yeah. and, and, and that you know he, he would rather get rid of that and things could then be rather straightforward i'm not going to say he's like spock from star trek quite <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's not as obvious as that but i i think you know to be fair the idea of emotions being messy i mean it's a it's a phrase that people often use isn't it and also they make us vulnerable and we don't really know what will emerge when we engage with them you know so if you're somebody that wants to stick to a very ordered way of looking at the world engaging with your own emotional responses isn't quite the greatest way of doing that sure. um yeah. but I, th I think also that we could i mean i know i know this might sound like a uh, you know, an, an unusual link, but I think it applies that, you know, if Alan Watts was able to <laughs> meet mm. up with Otto, uh, yeah. I think he'd be saying to Otto that you actually need to embrace the insecurity of life. You know, the fact that it isn't fully ordered, that it's dynamic and changing, and mm. that way you would feel more secure and less under siege. Whereas if you're more wanting to stick in, stay in the past, if you're more about, or you're too much about conservation and order, you're yeah. going to feel under siege by how things are changing. Uh, and that isn't necessarily always decay and destruction. You know, that that's what 
change means for Otto. And obviously, as he looks out and he sees these these slum areas, that that verifies in his mind that the idea that change is disorder and decay. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, the Alan Watts um, link, I, I think that is there because I think yeah, in Otto, it's he's you know it's like I mean obviously the Alan Watts paradox is is that if you the more you try to seek security, the more insecure you feel, and you need to embrace that insecurity. And I mean in Otto, you know, I mean like there was I mean it's almost it's kind of comic really. You know there was the detail that he one summer at Flinders, three gay men from New York came out and rented a barn and made lots of noise playing loud music. So. Yeah. Otto's response was he bought the barn, you know, just so they couldn't do, you know, that kind of level of need to control and not exactly. have offending, not, you know, I mean, that is a really pretty extreme kind of neurotic perspective, you know, in terms of, as you say, the order and the and the, and the control, you know, so it's it's obviously going to going to create somebody who's going to feel on some level deeply at threat of insecurity, you know. And, and, and I mean, a that's a good point about the the gay men and the playing Judy Garland and the yeah, farmhouse yeah. and how I think what was really telling is how much he saw it as a personal assault on him. Um, and yeah. this is the thing that, I mean, he could look out at that slum area and feel pity and want to get involved in political causes that could help those people. But of course, that would be like to be like Charlie Russell, apparently. Yes. But, you know, but he actually sees, and I mean, this isn't, you know, uncommon with human beings, you know, just to see something else is almost like a symbol of or a confirmation of your view, which actually could end up dehumanizing the people because he just thinks that the people across the road are, are you know, indicative of decay and disorder. Yes. And so he doesn't really see it as a, an anthropologist, as Jules Henry say, would, you know, that would try and empathically understand, well, how is it to, li how is it to live there and what are their needs? Yes. And how is the world from their side of the street? Of course, uh, he has yeah. no interest in that at all. Instead, he... Instead, he sees them, you know, he dehumanizes them through symbolism. And I think this is maybe one of the underlying themes of the novel is the, the danger of symbolizing things uh, and, and actually creating more alienation by doing so. I wouldn't say that the novel was terribly empathetic, just more generally in the way it depicts people, you know, from these kind of poorer, you know, uh, areas. No, I, I mean, you no. know, there was I, I, that. So that was a, that was a question I wondered about: is is there something a little bit kind of misanthropic about the perspective that Paula Fox has here? Um, I, I'm not sure of the answer to that, but I just kind of wondered about that one, really, in terms of just quite how really it is quite grotesque the way that these these characters are. Are kind of you know there's not really any sense of they're having any kind of voice or you know I mean there's obviously a degree of mm. sympathy from Sophie but you know I don't know do you think is there is it a kind of misanthropic depiction or is that maybe taking it too far? Yeah, I mean I think if the novel was written now that uh, and it was to be published that there would be the expectation that the that you know the 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 black characters in the, the the novel would be, or some of them would be more humanized rather yeah. than yep. being symbols of uh, this sort of decay that that's going around them as far as Otto sees it. 
anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I remember reading a book about humor, and, and there was a chapter about slapstick. Uh, and you know the more sort of physical based humor and how that would often be connected with people of uh lower status okay and it's one of the reasons the author was saying that that if a gentleman with a top hat slips on a banana peel it's funny because you know he's he's been reduced to the physical which we don't usually uh assume you know with people with higher status yes and so that and there is almost a sort of grotesque slapstick at times you know like say with the the black man with the green you know paper plane in his hand and his buttocks showing out and falling yeah. about and he, he seems to be drunken yeah um and so you know it, it, it's like um you know this grotesque physicality that is being portrayed um yeah. which is you know dehumanizing if we thought well that isn't how all black characters are and then also we don't actually know about this particular black character maybe he's ill or something or maybe there, maybe um he's in great distress and that's why he's behaving in this way i mean i think this is something that sophie maybe raises to be fair she does um, yeah and i true. think i think that you know if paula fox had been misanthropic she probably wouldn't have put that kind of line in to no, be honest that's, that's um true. really yeah. so i think you know that's a reminder that um we don't necessarily have to look at that scene in in that way actually even if someone like otto would be very keen to, to view it in, in, in that way. But yes, they're not the, the black characters, uh, the poor characters in the, the novel are not given much of a voice. Um apart you know, apart from that time the the black guy comes to, to use their phone. Um, yeah. but yeah. again, you know, as we've said time and time again with this novel, the characters um you know are, are never uh completely categorizable because you know auto does allow that guy to use the phone yeah um so he's not so prejudiced or frightened that you know he shuts the door on the guy nope. um and he also That's gives true. him 50 bucks as well which is you know isn't just a very clear-cut generous thing he, because he comes to regret it in some ways um and of yeah. course the significance of giving that money isn't quite clear but it can't certainly it can't be re read in a very straightforward generous way um, no 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 no, uh, no yeah. I, I i think so i mean i think like everything else about the novel yeah the, these these elements are handled kind of in a nuanced subtle way um and and yeah i don't think yeah i certainly don't think any kind of straightforward conclusion could be made about paula fox in that uh, no I, I, I didn't i didn't get the feeling um that she herself was, uh, you know, expressing prejudice um, there. But also, I did feel an uneasiness by there wasn't really a character in the novel to highlight that contrast. No. no uh, I mean, we no. do have Sophie uh, reminding Otto and reminding the readers, if they needed to be reminded, that... that uh, yeah, maybe the the black guy with the green plane in his hand is actually distressed in some way, or you know that we mustn't yeah. just see him as uh, as Otto would see as being entirely irresponsible. 
No, 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 no. Yeah, uh, it was it was difficult to know. I mean, quite kind of what to make of some of the way these these kind of minor characters were depicted. Because I, I, I was thinking the I think I think he's maybe meant to be Hispanic. There's there's the guy who ultimately Sophie sees him through the window in the early hours, and he's not mm. wearing any trousers, mm. and he kind of moves his hands to expose himself. Mm. You know, but you know that same character he, he features a little bit earlier because he has a baby that's mm. cried night and he gets up and again he's not wearing any he obviously sleeps with no no trousers on mm, so mm. But it's you know it's it describes him as just standing looking at the baby and the baby's crying and crying and he's not really sure quite what to do and um, but then later after he's he's just exposed himself you know sophie looks back mm. around again he's then kind of cuddling the baby so it's 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 you know it's difficult to know quite what to make of that really and as you say that these characters don't really get a chance to articulate themselves so it's all just a kind of slightly bizarre slightly grotesque background to the to the main to, to the action yeah i mean it? definitely they are portrayed as the other in yeah, the novel yeah. and i mean that would make sense in as far as the bent would would see them as other yeah. but they were probably other to some extent to paula fox uh, perhaps you know i mean i don't want to be uh, too categorical about that because I don't really know for sure. But yeah. but you get the feeling that there is that element there. Um, you know, that there's not a direct acquaintanceship. No. Uh, I, I would... there and, and that they are kind of observed from a distance. Uh, yeah, I mean, it would seem... and I mean, I don't know enough about Paula Fox's background either. I, I mean, I think... I th I think it, you know, it was a fairly literary kind of mm. family. So yeah, I mean, it's it's likely, yeah, it's likely she was writing from the perspective, I guess, that was more familiar to her, which would be the more kind of middle class, predominantly white, you know, kind of families that were that you know that she was kind of familiar with socially. I yeah. would assume. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know for sure on that one. That would be difficult to say. But that there's a slight vibe of that would seem to be coming across in, in the novel, I think. I think that's probably right. Well, um, I mean, you know, um the author LJ Davis will, will probably cover what it has but you know a meaningful life yeah, at some yeah. point. But you know, I think he, you know, in the 70s uh lived in that area where Paula Fox uh lived. Or certainly they were acquaintances uh and, okay. she, and she did a review wrote a review about his his book a meaningful life but um but you know i can remember reading that he had adopted a black child in that era okay and mm. that that had been quite an isolating thing to do in mm. that era because of the racism okay of that yeah. time so i mean this is not what a white family would have done in that era, of course, I think different strokes highlights that as well, does it? And and, yeah. and LJ Dave LJ Davis doing that was obviously a very noble thing to do, but not a common thing to do. And certainly the Bedwoods would never be doing that. No, um, no, no. So no. I'm not I think you know, I did get the, the, the sense that she was being misanthropic. I did get the sense that she was being overtly racist or anything like that, but maybe maybe just that that, you know. Um, certain groups would be observed from a from a distance, really, and and in quite quite a detached way. I think part of the problem that we're having here is that you know Paula Fox and and you know we have to come to our own evaluation about what this means. You know what mm. we think of this, sure. but you know Paula Fox is a very detached writer in general. You know, yeah, yeah. A, there is a 
you would never have guessed unless you read it that this was also a children's author you know <laughs> no, uh, not, true, not yeah. just not just because of the sophistication um you know of of the the writing um you know not to say that you know children's authors can't be very very intelligent but i'm just meaning you know a very different sort of genre of writing and and just that yeah the the there isn't a warmth there in, no it's not a what it's a very watchful acutely intelligent perspective and i say acutely because as i say it's like shards of glass um yeah. and yeah. and so you know um brilliantly written but there is a there is this i i felt anyway there was a certain chilliness in some ways you know i mean it's not as though what she was writing about was an upbeat scenario no but 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 it did seem there was a certain you know it was very literary and and quite clinical at the same time which is fascinating juxtaposition indeed yeah i mean it's uh, that's a great point though about her i mean she i think she primarily or certainly she wrote a lot more children's yeah. novels than she did adult novels but yeah i mean i she was i don't i'm not saying she's similar in style but i mean in terms of the kind of you know kind of writerly eye she was a little bit reminded me of pinter in terms of just quite how dark but also psychologically astute and not very warm you know this this kind of depiction was you know it was a, it's a bit like she you know not a similar writer to pinter but you know in terms of just spirit to some degree you know there was a kind of dark slightly yeah i mean i'm I'm not i'm not saying that that sensibility is one that i find uncongenial oh no 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 um or anything because obviously you know how it is uh with pinter that uh and he's like that too um but i think that because it is detached in many ways it's hard to work out if how you know if she was more detached when it came to black people and hispanic people if you see what i mean yes that's it's right. not it's, easy yeah, to work out to, because no, because the tone is generally detached <laughs> um, yeah you're, you're quite right and, so yeah it's not but it to... is yeah i mean it, mm-hmm. i think you're right that pinter and her do generally expect people to be quite neurotic and pathological in um yeah in 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 many ways um and it gets me thinking about and i don't know if i'm quite pronouncing her name correctly but you know the lady that wrote these brilliant aphorisms mignon mclaughlin that she said that you know human beings were like birds that you know from a distance that you know they were all beautiful on the wing and then up <laughs> close you would see their beady eyes and and i yeah. think there's that sensibility there with paula fox that it's a yeah. very close rendering of how people are behaving and you see the beady eyes not they're not saying all the time but there's a lot of that going on well indeed i mean i wonder because you know one i mean obviously the final question we're going to talk about really is about the kind of you know literary qualities of this well i think is an excellent novel but one 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 alternative way of phrasing that i wondered was you know obviously her novels very quickly went out of print you yeah. know they, they were they were quite critically regarded but they clearly something about them wasn't making them beloved you know and, and they've been revived ultimately you know yeah. by, particularly by jonathan franzen and kind of pushing for paula fox's talent which is there but yeah i wonder if something about that slightly forensic slightly detached tone 
really made it a bit unpalatable, actually, for for a period of time. Well, yeah, know? I was thinking that myself. I have to say that they've been revived, but with badly print, you know, print, you know, they've been badly print reprinted, which is almost like, you know, are they unsure whether they want us to read it or not? <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, this is not an endearing writer. I mean, mm. you know, the thing is that Pinter, Paula Fox, Caroline Blackwood, these people are not intending to be endearing and sure. how they portray people. Um, but again, they probably think that they're adhering to a, a very clean and honest realism. Well, I mean, um, Franzen, who, who I've mentioned a few times, I mean, he, you know, contemporary author, describes this as the greatest realist novel of the post-war era. You know, he's unequivocal about this particular novel of Paula Fox as being, you know, what absolutely iconic. I guess because it really captures something of, of well, New York, particularly at that time, but but there's so much more to it, and I think um, I think you could make a good case for that. I don't know; I haven't read enough of these these kind of um, genre yeah, I mean, novels. It's, 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 po it's possible. I mean, I mean it is know, a very good novel. There's no well, doubt it is, it, it is, um, and, and and but it's not it's not a feel. If we're putting it in very straightforward, basic terms, it's not a feel good. No, novel. no, no, no. And, it's I, rem not. and I remember one critics said that Pinter had created the feel bad play <laughs> and, yeah. and and I think that you know this is obviously a novel that is intent, you know is is intended to get us to examine our way of living you know particularly if our way of living was close to the bedwoods um so there's a lot of it's it's, it's got this intense scrutiny to it yeah and how many people have the stomach for that? Uh, I mean, also, you know, uh, how many people reading it would find it, um, shall we say, comprehensible, you know, enough? I mean, I'm not saying that it would go completely over um, most New Yorkers' heads, but again, the number of the percentage of people that it would resonate with them and that they maybe would get some... Um, deeper comprehension would be probably quite small i think you know it's not a popular novel it's definitely not i mean it's yeah i mean i think the feel bad labels pr pretty pretty spot on here because i think the thing is it's it's not really there's not really a lot offered here that's a kind of i think you could i mean if you dig really deep maybe you could get into what would be a more positive alternative to what she's depicting here but really i mean it's like it's both highlighting the the terrible grimness of those who are living in the slum areas and how miserable that is but it's also yeah. a pretty grim life of those who are living you know the kind of affluent more kind of american dream supposed lifestyle actually so it's quite subversive in that way because obviously you know their situation of privilege makes them vulnerable and also as we described somebody like otto neuroses about say seeking security and so yeah. on are likely to be exacerbated by that vulnerability yeah. and that wealth inequality so it's it's kind of you know it's not like there's there's really anybody who's living a really um enviable life in that novel you know that, well uh, no and and i mean you know we know ourselves that when you look at people's lives in general up close that they're that they're rarely enviable i mean you know i'm yeah. sure there's one or two out there but i mean you know that the, there is quite a lot of su suffering and distress and difficulty in oh, human yeah. life and so it, it, i think that you know for me a realistic novel um uh, uh, you know of uh various characters would if it was making out that they had very enviable lives that would really seem 
you know that realistic to me um no i i mean indeed uh, yeah i mean and again it's like it's just slightly reminded me as well about the you know the the the, the sort of film noir genre again you know kind of cultish movies that have varied in their popular appeal you know in some cases really have been revived and so on and again it's the same it's the same story really isn't it you know it's, it's well i mean it's both a specifically a critique of, of kind of the american dream notion but also yeah just showing people in dilemmas you know people who who are struggling and suffering and you know it's 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 realism but it's quite difficult to swallow particularly maybe if you it's not always what people look for when they go to buy a, a novel obviously you know, well no i mean the yeah i mean you know you, you you know in psychology they talk about this uh, idea of depressive realism okay which yeah. is yep. which is this notion that in some regards people with depression are more realistic mm. about certain situations you know and you know, you get the sense that this is almost a work in the genre of depressive realism. Um and <laughs> yep. in, in, in that there's no real solution uh, offered. Um, but there's a very acute rendering of the symptoms and maybe an intimation of what the underlying disease is to some extent, but no idea of a cure or antidote anytime soon. <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, it's funny. I mean, when, um, when I was thinking about that issue, you know, it, the, I, I, you obviously mentioned Alan Watts yeah. earlier, and it reminded me of the Alan of you know what an Alan Watts might say yeah. if he encountered, as you said, like like an auto. But I mean <laughs> that you know, if you've not read Alan Watts alongside this, you know, you're not really getting an awful lot in terms of yeah, something kind of constructive you can take from this really about the good life. It's just really, as you say, it's really getting at the nitty gritty of of kind of ennui and existential angst and, and breakdowns in communication, all these things that lead to lots of kind of suffering that, that wealth yeah. can't really solve. You know, it's 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 yes. certainly Yeah, no, no, it can't. And and obviously wealth can exacerbate in the terms of, you know, that sort of sterile rationality that Otto has as part of a is is symptomatic to some extent of his wealth and education. Yeah. Um so I mean it's that kind of thing that that you know, civilizing influences, shall we say, could also lead to a certain sterility. Yeah. And I think that's the thing, you know, that um, you know, like if you're seeing it in a Freudian way, how do we get that balance between the id and our conscience, our superego? Because, you know, if if we see life as um you know, that this notion that you've either got this sort of sterile rationality or you're rabid, <laughs> <laughs> then you're not yeah. going to be able to integrate your feelings and your, and your thoughts with any kind of aliveness. Because, you know, the aliveness comes mainly from your feelings. But if you see it as being like the potentially rabid stray cat yep. that you've disowned and that now it's come back you know the return of the repress then you know you're not going to really feel alive you're going to be shut off uh in this sort of sterile uh you know will to order uh so yeah. i think it, i think it's like how, you know we've got to be very careful about how we define certain things you know that uh we mustn't uh you know, discredit our feelings as simply something messy and rabid as uh, as Otto and maybe Sophie to some extent as well. Uh, I think that's true. I mean, I think that because, I mean, to me, obviously, as you said, this is, you know, it's, for various reasons, this is going to be quite a 
maybe a tricky novel. Some people would maybe be struggling a little bit with it just because it's quite it's quite complex and of course it's not very upbeat. But but there is something in these, as you said, these kind of depictions of the the malady. You know, when you look really closely at them, you can see you know, there's real wisdom to be found there, actually, because as yeah, you say, I mean, yeah. this this is different species of really a bit like with Pinter, really neurotic living that <clears throat> we don't, we're not, you know, compelled to live in that way, and we can have more awareness about them. So there is, um, there is actually tremendous value in somebody who's willing to go there, I suppose, into the kind of maybe depressive realism stuff because they can actually highlight. Yeah, how bad it can get, or or some of the pitfalls, but but yeah, we can we can still kind of think about that and not yeah, not just simply be depressed by it. You know, we can we can do well. Do no, no, that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a novel that that uh, inevitably makes someone depressed. I don't oh, no, mean no, it no, no, in, in that in in that way, but I think that you know it could potentially be seen as downbeat. Yeah, um, yeah, which not necessarily. I mean, again, it's not going to be a very prescriptive novel about you know ways to overcome those things, but but you know, in a subtle way, it can suggest how how we can how people exacerbate that alienation or estrangement from their feelings and from each other. There's <laughs> something that we can learn from the story in that way. Well, I mean, because there was a, there was the interesting line, wasn't there, right towards the end, where Sophie, she is it, what she's, I think she's something about she's about to put some kind of really expensive face mm. cream on, and she's reflecting about what's happened with the cat, and she mm. says she has a moment of extreme relief, and it's something about she says, "God, if I'm rabid, I'm equal to what's out there," or something like that. Yes, that's and right. A, you know, and I thought oh, that's an interesting little kind of subtle hint at a you know, what's the way out of this dilemma? Because there is something in the sort of maybe moment of self-awareness there or, you know, just almost kind of overcoming the the, the me and the other d dimension to her, maybe the way she might think ordinarily um, yeah. in that yeah, moment. Well, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can see why somebody might read it that way. I, I kind of saw that line as very telling as well, but more a sort of uh, indication of the distortion in their perspectives, which is, you know, to see the outside world as simply rabid was, was a, a kind of, um, you know, distorted characterization of that world, you know, as, as yes. though, um, and that that was part of the problem, because if you see the outside world as rabid um, and you're not, say, yeah. then, you know, that's why you can feel that you've got to, maintain this the spurious order you know um and feel under siege on the other hand yeah if she was rabid it's like this idea well maybe i could you know rejoin that world in some ways um yeah uh, i mean that was that was the thought i i, I kind of had i mean I, yeah but i mean it's a little bit oblique and i'm not sure really again like most of the things in this novel it's quite hard to be too definitive about quite what the meaning is but well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah i mean it, it, it's um as I say, I think the characters are caught in this dichotomy between too much order or seeing things as rabid, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and they're imprisoned within that, and they don't really have a way of reconciling, you know, the sort of alive chaos with the sort of potentially deadening order, really. Particularly um, given, the, you know, the economic context, because, you know, in a way, some of their 
say, security fears are realistic, right? Because, I mean, obviously, if they're going to live in, in that neighborhood and they're going to have yeah. a very, you know, gentrified house and so on, then that is somewhat vulnerable. And and, and obviously, she goes to see her friend Claire, doesn't she, who's living in a, yeah. I, I think, a maybe a, can't remember what area it is, but I think the suggestion is it's more directly dangerous, you know, the streets round about where she's living yeah. and so on. And yeah, I mean, there is a, there is a kind of unavoidable insecurity there and but but it's not that that things are rabid that's obviously taking it too far so it's that it's that difficulty really isn't it no yeah i mean it it is yeah i mean there is that you know there's there's something that otto and sophie don't quite appreciate which is there's different kinds of order and you know and (laughs) Mm -hmm. the, the order outside their world may not be rabid and chaotic um but they seem to think it is just because it's uh, you know it's a world that they're not acquainted with and and it and it seems very different to their world so they think it's chaotic uh that it's rabid when it may may not be um real i think i think that's it i mean obviously sophie you know she's distraught by the vandalism of their Flinders yeah. home, but not, not to the same degree because it's like, there's a little, she's a little bit closer to that mm. understanding, I suppose, of, of maybe the mentality of maybe some teenagers who, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. And yeah, obviously with her kind of, you know, are, are thinking maybe I am rabid, you know, there's a, there's, there's a kind of strange potential momentary consolation in that thought, but yeah, certainly Otto's very, very far away from, being able to bridge that gap even in a maybe even in a not you know not terribly realistic way you know and i mean it's it's very much othered you know uh, from yeah yeah i mean it's like kind of trying to integrate that order and chaos shall we say in a way that that keeps a dynamic um growth going rather than in the case of auto you know sticking to this um you know preservation Yes. Of the past. Yeah. Uh, but and, and anything that, that is different is seen as rabid, is seen as chaotic, is seen as, um, you know, destruction, you know, sort of devolution. Yeah, that's right. Indeed, yeah. It's, again, it's the, the yeah, the, the neurosis of absolutes, really, isn't it? I suppose, you know, the. the yeah, I, I think I think so. Uh, there. I mean, and, and that maybe. You know what is for Sophie this this insight. You know if she's rabid, then it should be like the the world outside. Maybe that moment of illumination for her is also a a revelation of the distortion of the perspective to us. If you see what I mean. I'm wondering what you made of the final scene of the novel, Alec. Obviously, we have. Otto hurling the inkwell that Sophie's been using to write to her mum against the wall and we're kind of left with the two of them standing looking at the, the the ink dripping down as we hear Charlie's voice coming through the phone saying that he's desperate, he's desperate. Um, how did you read that final scene? I mean, this is the him, he's angriest in a way, you know, like that he, I mean, for most people throwing uh, an ink bottle at a, a wall isn't, you know, that that bad, you know, but for someone that is so controlled, yes, and uh inhibited, you know, that is obviously quite a, a change, you know, a shift for him. And Absolutely. it's a sign, I think it's a sign of his exasperation, his desperation. And the way I read it was that 
he doesn't really know how to engage with Charlie at that point. You know, mm -hmm. he was reaching out in this very, you know, desperate, pleading way. Yes. And yet he doesn't really know what how to, to deal with that, you know, what really to do. And the, I thought the, the characters are so alienated, you know, him and Charlie are so estranged from each other in a way. And it, and again, I thought it was just brilliantly subtle and ambiguous that I think when he does that, initially, Sophie, I think, does she put her arm around him or something? And, yes, and you know, yes. as if suggesting, in a way, that's all, that could be like she's seen that as a bit of a breakthrough. He's actually, you know, expressed the motion and he's, and he's, he's, he's in touch with a bit of anger. But then they kind of separate a little again or they just stand beside each other and they just look at the ink dripping down, you know. So, mm, again, mm. even there, as you said, I mean, you, you can't really have any definite reading of any of it. I think there was a good quote at the in the the introduction by uh, Jonathan Franz, and he said something about the sentences being like tidy novels in themselves, you know, this, yes, he calls yeah. it like small miracles of compression, you know, and it is a bit like that. You know, you could really zone in on any zoom in sorry on any particular little part of it and and it can suddenly seem more and more complex you know it really is quite quite well something. yes yeah i mean the it's very compressed and because of that you know you get this sense of heightened significance between you know even within so many lines yeah um mm -hmm. there but but yes clearly Otto had came to some kind of uh, crisis point for him you know, I mean, his, his crisis, the way it would be expressed, would be rather understated, you know, like throwing <laughs> yes. uh, an ink bottle against the wall. But still, it shows that he's lost the sense of how to respond, you know, uh, a, a kind of coming to the end of his tether, but not in a very, very dramatic way. Again, this is connected to the sort of realism yeah. of, but of the novel. But again, quite a good moment in a sense for the curtain to drop, really, you know. But given the given what what the novel is, you know, in terms of that, again, being kind of ambiguous, being a kind of moment of drama. But as you said, I mean, not not that that dramatic as far as it could go. So, no. unclear what what that all, you know. Again, it's so unresolved at that point, really, you know. Well, what, it, well, it is. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, Sophie going over to support him, you know, put her arm around him as a sign of a connection. But as you say, it's then quickly withdrawn with the yes. looking. Um and yeah, I mean there's them looking at the ink flowing down the wall and that sort of bewilderment. It's sort of like how they feel about their predicament overall, you know, that they they're they're witnessing it as much as experiencing it and are somewhat bewildered by it. That's yeah. That's a that's a very good point. That's exactly it. Yeah, that kind of pause to just stare at it and not quite know what to do. I mean, that is a. You're quite right. That really is what they're doing throughout the novel in a way. You're I not think sure so in, in many ways. And then you've got the little voice of Charlie Russell coming through the yeah. telephone. <laughs> um, I mean, because you know, you could imagine two people that could have dealt with that estrangement in a way that, that heals the relationship to some extent. But yes. but Otto and Charlie being so different, it makes you wonder, actually, how they became business partners to begin with. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And, but, you know, Otto just has no... Again, it's maybe the sense of being besieged by things, you know, uh, in that he's being besieged by Charlie, you know, by this, this, this incessant phone calls. Well, and, I mean, it was interesting because, I mean, the way that I think 
Sophie at one point, I can't remember who she's describing it to, but it's the idea that he, in the early days, he saw Charlie's mm. opposite but admirable. You know, he had almost like an envy mm. and he felt a bit insecure, but it's like as, as time's gone on and he's felt more, well, self-assured mm. in a way, but certainly more attached to his own orderly way of doing things. Mm. It was like it. I think she describes it as a shift, you know, to seeing Charlie is ultimately more histrionic rather than just enjoyably emotional you know there's there's a subtle shift in that he sees this difference as is unpalatable suddenly and that mm. that would seem to fit with the narrowing of his perspective i would have thought you know and a kind of a, a more and more attachment to the the neurotic actually and 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 mm. him so yeah i don't know that. well yeah i mean the the thing is from what we can glean you know charlie russell is someone that there's a bit of a performativity about him. what would we say now virtue signaling mm. to some extent yeah, but there yeah. is a, but there is also uh, a sense of things are changing and that it's right to keep up with that yeah but you know for Otto he, you know he sees that he just sees the histrionic and performative virtue signaling <laughs> element of it he doesn't he doesn't seem to he can't grant any credence to the positive aspects of what Charlie Russell is doing, because that's about change, you know, wanting change or at least accepting change. Uh, you know, yeah. Charlie Russell at least accepts that change. Otto is certainly wa working against it or refusing to see it. In, and in it's, some and it's, ways. A, it's a good point as well, though, you make there that, you know, that to some extent, you know, Otto has actually maybe seen through things in Charlie that he maybe initially maybe naively saw as being Ooh. entirely good. And he's seen, Ooh. he's seen some insincerity and he's now kind of gone to the other extreme in a way. It's about like, again, this problem of this kind of absolute way that he categorizes the world people in it and so on. So, so Charlie's now flipped in a way. Um, yeah. It, but I think, I think, you know, if we look at the final scene, You've got someone that is struggling to adhere to how he sees Charlie because probably he recognizes this guy's trying to reach out to him. True. But, but he also has this very definite and categorical stance on him. And yeah. I think yeah. he doesn't really know how to reconcile those two things. And he throws the ink uh, bottle against the wall, yeah. you know, because he just has got this frustration he doesn't really know what to do he doesn't want to talk to him yeah because he thinks you know to use a holden caulfield term he thinks he's a phony yep um <laughs> but <laughs> another new yorker and, <laughs> and but also there probably is part of him that recognizes this as real vulnerability too. yeah yep uh, and he doesn't really know how to respond to it so he you know he acts in the way that he does yeah, I, th I think I think so. I think that is, uh, yeah, it's funny, actually, obviously we haven't, um, you know, the fact that we'd covered Catch and Ride, you know, not too long ago, obviously yeah. that's another kind of iconic, um, you know, and there's, you know, New York anyway, to a good extent in, in that novel. Um, what, what, if you were to actually, just as a, maybe as a final, final issue to consider, what would be, which of the two novels do you do you prefer? Um, say Catcher in the Rye versus Desperate Characters. Obviously, there's similarities and differences there. What? what um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I for me, yeah, I I think I would go with uh, Desperate Characters being. I mean, of course, you know, the narrative voice is of this, you know, highly intelligent, perceptive, you know, uh, viewer. 
audience member almost watching their lives and chronicling it and of course you know salinger is writing in the the voice of a a 14 year old i think at the the time so Uh, obviously obviously holden isn't going to write with the same acuity of perception as as the so when i say that i had the sense that desperate characters was better written in, in some ways Again, you know, it might be a bit unfair because obviously it would just be, it just wouldn't be realistic at all for a 40 year old to write, have that kind of voice. Of course, um, yeah. But yeah. I, I would say overall that that I, I felt more congenial to Catch on the Rye. Okay. Um, yeah. uh, as, a, as a book. Um, yeah. Because. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned Pinter earlier on and, you know, both of them, both Paula Fox and Pinter are very, you know, they've they've got this very jaundiced eye. um, Yeah. You know, a very acute jaundiced eye. Um, For me, when it comes to Pinter, I don't really have much a problem with that. I didn't feel it chilly. Yeah, you know, whereas yep. I did find this novel quite chilly. Yeah, um, in a way, and and I'm more drawn to the, to the, you know, the perceptions of Catch on the Rye. You know that there's, there did seem to be a disillusionment in that novel, but also a sense of some good, yes, a palpable good. Yeah, uh, which you know I think just resonated more with me than than desperate characters actually yeah i think that's an interesting an interesting way to see i i definitely shared that experience i mean it was yeah it, it, i find it a really fascinating novel desperate characters and i you know even rereading sections of it it is so dense and rich and intriguing so i find it a very very intriguing uh, novel to read and i think having got to the end and then gone back and rereading some of the earlier sections you know the the consistency and the characters and just the kind of little subtle portents was mm. you know it, it really is a is a is a wonderful well, there's no question about know, that in I that mean... sense but i but i but I, yeah, I do agree still in terms of just a kind of subjective enjoyment factor or just a kind of yeah warmth definitely something like catching the eye just has a more immediate appeal you know there would just be some a little bit um and it and both are both have good realism and so on i mean it's not a really a question of that but that you know but yeah there there is there is something about it that's it's fascinating but yeah it, it is a little bit cold there is something a little bit cold about it i, I would i would certainly say yeah, so. yeah and i mean you know no doubt that can be defended by the point that you know the nature of what she's examining is, yeah. is, is you know these characters and extremists you know um and and also the kind of people that they are the you know the, the these middle class rather inhibited uh people that, that it's not going to be an upbeat book in in many ways so i, I get that and and i think in many ways it is a realistic novel i wasn't i wasn't entirely convinced by the realism of the dialogue at times you know that yeah um because i mean you know how it can you know pinter's dialogue can seem very realistic uh and, and that and that can obviously portray how people quickly change topic and so on and so forth but i did feel at times that the 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 way that character spoke um that they changed topic and it was almost like it was more to highlight a theme 
than what people might do in real life. In other words, they didn't really talk on one subject for any length of time. And I know that people do change subject and can make quite jarring changes of topic, particularly when the, the closer you are to someone. Yes. But there was a kind of disjointed element to the dialogue that I didn't feel quite rung true for me. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. I mean, it, yeah, I mean... It, Obviously, the characters are so literary, and obviously, and Paula Fox herself, mm. you know, has such yeah. a great grasp of language. Yeah. Sometimes, some some of the scenes seemed a little bit like I could envision them as, you know, more like you know, it could could be turned into a film and so on. Which I know, obviously, they did of this novel, but you know, in terms of just like the dialogues, almost there's almost a kind of it's almost a bit too polished in a sense for what really could have quite been happening in that. Well, moment. I mean, I, I I mean, you know, we know that that novels do that, and you know that that is, you know, they can still be realistic. Um, I yep. think it's just that you know, at one minute, you know, say when Otto was driving to the country home and he's saying he was just thinking about his father and he goes into some detail then there's a then Sophie says something completely off topic and they're on another and I yeah. mean I know that yep. people can do that in real life particularly the closer you are with someone the the less pressure you feel to stick to some topic sure but, but it did seem a little bit too disjointed at times um yeah and in, in, in that way in terms of realism yeah, uh, as I would see it, I think. I think also that, you know, I, I'm just trying to understand why I can sort of, you know, enjoy Pinter's chilliness or jaundice I more <laughs> than I did with this, and and I think it's because I didn't really feel there was any real humour in this book okay. as well. You know, I didn't. I mean, there might have been wit, but yeah. I can't really think. I mean, you could maybe laugh at a. a you know, it's it's something that's so well stated. You know, a perception about something, but sure. but it was not. Um, the there didn't seem to be, you know, humorous elements like you do get in, say, Caroline Blackwood or Pinter's um, kind of work here. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it, 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 to me, it had a kind. There was a certain austere element to it, and. Overall, and so I, I can really admire it. I can yeah. value it, but I don't think I could be a fan of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. I mean, insofar as there was, I mean, sometimes some of the really grotesque moments, it was a bit hard to know really what whether you were meant to, as you said earlier about slapstick, whether it was to be seen in that sense or whether it was more, I don't know, really. And and there was also kind of. Some of the characters had a kind of slightly absurd dimension to them, you know, maybe like our kind of really eccentric artist friend that she goes to visit and she's cooking clams and there's this really kitchen with cockroaches climbing the walls. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. You know, there was there was that, but but yeah, I mean, it wasn't a predominantly funny novel in that. No, sense. I'm not saying I'm not more... saying I was expected it to be predominantly funny, but but I think that when that when some humour is left out, I mean humour that is integral to the story, not just tacked on. Sure. That that you know, to me, the there is a sort of leaving out an essential part of life in a way. Now I know that I know that Otto and Sophie didn't seem to have that kind of relationship where they had a laugh together, really. Yeah. Um. You know, and of course, I also appreciate that uh, this was a difficult weekend 
for them, <laughs> yes. to say the least, because you know the bite and the significance of it. Yeah, but yeah, it, it, and maybe I mean again, you know, maybe the case that if you or I were around in 1969 when I think it's set in New York, that maybe going to these parties that it maybe would have that vibe. Maybe yeah, there's a very yeah. act, so I'm I'm not disputing that, but yeah. I think just for me as a as a reader reading it just now that that yeah there was a certain austere quality that um, couldn't quite make me a fan, even though I, I do admire it and think it's a, a great novel. Um, yeah, but, I, I, yeah, I I just find it just going back to what you said earlier about you know the the fact that Paula Fox was was a children's author. I mean, she's an extremely gifted writer. You know, yeah. her ability to write is is you know it really is quite incredible. But yes, yeah, I find it interesting the way that she opted to to do children's fiction. Um, you know, well, alongside yes, this yeah. kind of stuff, you know, it's it's a, it's well, it's, maybe you know, maybe at some point we could read her memoir, you know, um, yeah. that wrote, and that could give us some insight into that. I mean, I, I, from what I could glean, uh, our mother kind of abandoned her emotionally, right. so I think that you know she's some you know as a young child, so I think she yeah. was someone that grew up with that orphan's perspective, you know, like no firm allegiance to anything yes. except to what she thought was true. Mm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why the, we've got this detached and not very affiliative tone yeah. uh, to her writing. Um if you see what I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I mean, obviously, yeah, because I mean, there, and there is that, you know, there's suppose there's the kind of straightforward explanation that it could be that she just wrote some children's fiction to make money, really, to you know, the kind of well, that might might have simply been that, and this was more kind of her expressing her more artistic vision in, in this this kind of novel. I mean, I I don't really know for sure, Stephen, about mm. uh, the psyches of children's authors, but I I would imagine that at least some of them you know, growing up have had difficult childhoods and understand the challenges of childhood and want to write for children in, in, in a way that, that helps them deal with the difficulties of growing up. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was one of her motives. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, really, yeah, there, yeah. That, that maybe, you know, if, if you've had that difficult, estranged mm -hmm. childhood, um, maybe with someone like herself that that you know she had sympathy then for children and wanted to write something that helped them deal with the difficulties of growing up yeah that's um, a point i mean certainly the interview i read of her earlier on which you know in a kind of latter years she yeah she talked a lot in that actually about that you know having the desire to communicate life as it really was to children and yeah, not, okay. not in a not in a traumatizing way but not to necessarily steer away from difficult subjects no, you know, that was like no. something that was quite important to her so yeah i could see that you know maybe as you say she's imagining herself at that age and how she maybe how she coped by using her understanding actually yeah. to to get a, a sense of stability yeah or, i know. i don't i don't get the impression that she wrote those books simply for the bucks. I no, don't think no, no, that that would, no. I think also that one of her books won the equivalent of the Pulitzer, you know, for children's authors. So okay, she won yeah. very prestigious prizes for her children's books, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
if you, it sounds like if you were maybe her agent, <laughs> you might be <laughs> wanting to steer her more to the uh, to. I was about to say to adult fiction, but actually writing for adults, <laughs> which is not quite the, the same thing. <laughs> no, um, no, no, yeah. So I mean, and I get that because, but then you know we have to appreciate that you know, children's authors can be very creative too. Oh, yeah. Um, but but no. there was but there was obviously something about her that didn't want to speak only to adults in her in her writing. True. Um and um and I wonder clearly she couldn't have had quite the same austere perspective I imagine when she wrote her children's books as um as she did in Desperate Characters. No, um, I, w- I would have thought not. No, I mean, she, she seems like, uh, you know, I mean, obviously there, there aren't that many interviews with her that I could really find, but it was interesting. You know, she had a kind of down-to-earth way of speaking, and she also had a f- kind of quite amusingly matter-of-fact attitude to the film version of this uh, Desperate Characters, which I think had Shirley MacLaine in it, that um, mm. she basically said she didn't think it was very good and it didn't really work, but she was, but she, had, she made some comment like, but it helped me pay for this house or something like that. So she had a, a slightly private <laughs> Pragmatic, you know, she yeah. was fine about it, but she just didn't really rate it. Kind of, kind of. Uh, well, I mean, to, to be honest, you know, unless you're a sort of Stephen King level of uh, fame and, uh, you know, the money that you make from that, most authors do think about money and think yeah. you have to think about it in quite a pragmatic way. So, I mean, yeah. how much that's a sign of who she was and how much it's a sign of living as a writer and, and, the, and the pressures of that is hard to hard to tell. I mean, you know. Yeah, um, well, well, I mean, she certainly wasn't making a fortune from her adult fiction in terms of the, the, the them going no. out in front in, in that sense. So, yeah. No, I mean, and, I mean, and, I think, and, I, and to be fair, I think... Uh, you know, if we're being precise about it, it's it's semi in print at the moment with the yeah. with that edition because it's terrible print. Um, really, it was, there, it was so, really poor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it is. It's, it's quite it's quite an experience to read a novel that is so crystalline in its insights, but the print is so badly printed. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a, quite an experience, no, I, that. I mean, I, I was um, thinking that I had been sent a kind of knockoff copy of it because, the yeah, as you say, the text was so poor, and it's such a shame because, obviously, I mean, again, this is a relatively recent kind of re-championing of her work yeah. by 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 franzen and and yeah obviously i don't know what's happened with the printing but it was, it, we obviously got the same kind of version and it was like it was well i knew i was going to get that because somebody had posted a review on amazon that it was okay. terrible the print so i mean yeah. it certainly um, is a little bit disrespectful to such a well-written novel um, i think sense. so yeah. i think so but obviously anybody that reads it and enjoys it will be able to see beyond that because yes. the the novel demands so much of our interpretive capacities and, and abilities to look at symbolism that we'll be able to see over and beyond the bad print. Um, well, most there. definitely. And it'll be interesting to see if the kind of Paula Fox revival, you know, does kind of continue in terms of our getting... I know that Franzen had, had added her to... A, he must have been a, um, doing, you know, teaching on a university course and she had mm. been part of the syllabus and so on, obviously, as part of that. Yeah. So, yeah, I wonder, I wonder. I mean, it is a very... I could see it could be a really kind of iconic New York novel, even though it is... You know, as we said, a little bit maybe unpalatable in some regards, a bit cold in tone, and so on. It is still um, quite a vivid depiction of of the Brooklyn of that yes. time. I, I wonder yeah. what's. I mean, it, it, it's. Um, I think so. Um, I'm not sure how 
long it will remain in print. I certainly hope it does, and it deserves to be. But yeah. I think it it, it is, um, you know, written in this uh, hyper intelligent austere way that that could be a potential barrier for it. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of people reading it and recommending it, perhaps. Um, yeah, I wonder. I'm the, not um... sure. The you know the very famous um, critic Lionel Trilling you know I said, yeah. there was a quote from him where it's where he described it at the time obviously when it came out as a reserved and beautifully realised novel so he was like he was a fan of it but again you know even he was seeing it you know writing at that time and very literary interest you know as being on the reserved side so it, it may that may be a, a difficulty for it I wonder just, yeah yeah I mean I think that you know. Uh, reading it and following that journey there's much to think about you know as yeah. we've discussed yeah but i think it can be quite a difficult presence or atmosphere to to exist in and in, in in the you know is is quite detached hyper reflective and somewhat clinical yeah. in the way that it looks at at the characters um yeah it, it is in some way a sort of, almost like a case study I, I was just thinking that yeah maybe um, maybe Paula Fox in another life could have been like a psychoanalyst or so you know there could have been I a think sort of, so I, th yeah. I th oh, definitely yeah I think mm -hmm. that she would have had very astute comments to make about you know her clients or patients as they might be called in that world <laughs> yeah. um and yeah. and and yeah but I, I I just what you know I wonder you know I wonder what a fan would be like of the novel. Maybe you would class yourself as a fan of it. I don't know. You know, like for me, as I say, I admire it. I, I certainly value it and appreciate it. Yeah. I'm glad I read it. I don't know if I'd be a fan of it. But I'm just trying to think about what the typical fan yeah, of this novel yeah. would be like yep. uh, as a person. Um, I don't think they yeah. would be Otto. I don't think they'd be Sophie. No. Um, but, but you, you know, because for me imagining a fan well a fan is somebody that has a you know quite a a strong and perhaps even intense attachment to something but but this would be a, a quite an intense attachment to something that was hyper reflective and rather austere so yeah. um but i'm not saying it's yeah, impossible it's, it's, no it's a good question i mean it has i think it has kind of developed a slight cult status um, i know it's there was a netflix series out a few years ago which was quite popular called you which mm. was quite a dark series and and the, the novels mentioned quite a bit it's the first series is set in new york and so on so there was a kind of sense of it being mm. a kind of shared enthusiasm so yeah, I wonder. Um, yeah, I'm not. I, 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 I think I'm still trying to process quite how I feel about the novel. I certainly found it very interesting and a very yeah, yeah. And, and it's one that I would I would definitely revisit because it's it is as you say it's like a case study. It's such a complex delving into the character psychology. Is. So I, I liked it, but I, I don't know if I loved it. I liked it, but um, yeah, I'm not but sure it would be in my top top ten. Say, you know, for example. Um, but then, but then maybe it's. Maybe it was never written to be loved, though. Quite mm, well, you know, I I don't yeah. know if that's what she was really looking to achieve. There, I, I don't think she probably was. Um, no, and yeah, and and yeah. It, and and it raises that thing about if you look at things in that very detailed and acute way, how lovable does things emerge from that um <laughs> well that's yes yeah, so indeed. i mean the, there is these bigger questions yeah really there. that's right that's right um so
Yes, interesting. Well, um, that certainly we've we've covered quite a lot of uh, a lot of ground there, and obviously that you can never be conclusive in 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 uh, Paula Fox's world as far as it goes. But I think <laughs> you know that. Is, well, um, we're not going to finish the podcast by throwing a dink bottle against the wall or anything no, reckless I, I, like that. I don't think we've reached that that point of rage. I no, think I that was almost no, level no. of recklessness. Um, <laughs> I think it'll be a, a more low-key. Low key I, I would think that, you know, in Scotland that would really count as reckless. You know, <laughs> in the, you know, it's not like uh, they ever had a rabbi or anything like that. So I don't think so. And I don't think many people have ink bottles sitting around either, actually. So no, not, 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 be, in general, uh, not, not, not in general. Not in the 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> Again, though, all joking aside, I think the ink bottle and the quill is a sort of testament to his, uh, his, uh, you know, his sort of fetishism of the past. But that's another matter. Um, Good point. Yeah, indeed, that's true. That's yeah, true. But, but, I, but yes, you're getting yes. to the point. Like, well, don't open up another. <laughs> another <laughs> no, 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 we're closing it down. We're closing <laughs> it down. Don't, don't start. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get like Charlie Russell still talking about the intricacies <laughs> into four AM. You know. Uh, <laughs> You're going to be rather increasingly like auto. It it would be unfortunate Um, if it just ended with your voice saying, look, Stephen, I'm desperate. Can you please, you know, reply (laughs) to me here? Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, just to make clear, you know, I mean, people might be wondering, what is he desperately asking for, you know? (laughs) But no, I'm not, I'm not desperate, by the way. You're not, you're not desperate for a response on that issue. I'm not desperate in general, actually. (laughs) So just to be clear. Just to be, just to make that clear. Excellent. Exactly, yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Right. Well, well, thank you. That's that's been good. And okay, we'll, thanks we'll, for that. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. Yeah. Okay.